Welcome to the Investing for Life podcast, where we apply proven investment principles to the lives of successful business people to help you enrich your own. With your host, Douglas Isles. I'm delighted to be joined today by Ben Darwin. Ben established Gainline Analytics after more than a decade of involvement in professional sport. As a player, Ben represented the ACT Brumbies in Super Rugby and played at international level for the Wallabies. Ben has considerable experience in coaching, player development and analysis in both Australia and Japan. Driven by a desire to introduce a greater degree of empirical analysis into professional sport, Ben started Gainline Analytics in 2013. As a hand-on founder, Ben is involved at every level of the business, whether it's developing predictive models, presenting research findings or consulting with clients. Ben, thanks for joining the show today. Pleasure. I've known you now for, for a number of years. We've probably never really talked much about the injury that sort of defined your rugby career in the, the semi-final, the World Cup in 2003. So it'd be a good place to start. Can you just sort of describe, I guess, what happened and how it impacted you? I think it's an interesting place to start because it's a conversation I've had thousands of times and I've met thousands of people, tens of thousands of people who've asked me about it. And you can get desensitized to it a tiny bit when you tell the same story again and again and again. But the nature of it is quite strange in your career to be known for seven seconds. Like the rest, the rest in conversations with people doesn't necessarily, isn't really of interest to them, but they want to know about that incident. Now I've no problem talking about it, but it's something that as somebody who's gone through that, you have to kind of move past yourself. It's like, I'm not that moment in time, but it very much defines you. So. In the context of the tournament leading in, I did my knee and we had to rush to get ready for the tournament. And uh, I didn't sort of have the power that I needed on my left knee. And when you scrummage at the top of the prop, you got to scrummage to the outside. You're drawing your power from your left leg. And we sort of got through the tournament and I was on the bench for a guy called Al Baxter at the start of the tournament and then slowly sort of made my way back into the starting team. And then we sort of got to the semi-final. And I distinctly remember in facing the harker in that game thinking i'm finally where i want to be i'm finally doing something i really love and it was like i'd just been starting to get comfortable about playing for australia little did i know for my last game so i was against a guy called dave hewitt he scrummages very straight up and down and um i was sort of having a pretty good day in the scrum and then a guy called case news comes on and case is a very powerful guy and he's actually a, a tight head prop normally, but he was playing loose head prop on this day. He scrummages very aggressively, tries to get underneath you. And I saw him before the first scrum, and he sort of looks over me and gives me the, the eyebrow, you know, are you ready to go? And I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go. So I come in and I hit him, but I basically don't, I take the same channel I've been taking against Dave, which was not the right channel to take against Case Muse. And uh, and so I got caught between him and Kevmi Alaba's left shoulder. And what you basically have to do when you're, when you're scrummaging is, if I'm on the tight head not between these two guys, is you have to be able to balance off both of them. And I just got slightly wrong. Case gets underneath me and basically it turns my head and my neck over. And then I hear this crack, crack, crack. And it's, it's, I'm getting what's called sublux in your spinal cord. So the top two or three vertebrae, C1, C2, C3 pop out. And then in the scrum, all of a sudden floppy. I've got no power. Can't feel anything below my chin. I say into his ear, my neck, my neck. And then when I've watched the footage, I only watched it once, uh, twice actually. And the second time I was on a TV show a couple of years ago and they're like, oh, here's the footage of you almost dying. I'm like, I didn't want to see that. But anyway, <laughs> so I just flop. It looks like I've been shot because I've lost all power. Physio comes on, said, what's wrong? I said, I, I can't feel my arms and legs. And I'm looking at them going, well, these can't be mine because they're, they're not, no, I'm not feeling them. And actually in falling down, Case actually stood over the top of me to make sure that I was going to be okay, which is uh, 
you know, I say the tragedy of that is my life is saved by New Zealand. So it was very, very surreal and not actually very emotional because I remember lying there thinking, what am I going to do? I really like computers. I'm probably a quadriplegic. I'm going to get into computers now because you're just trying to solve a problem. So that was that, that moment. It's interesting because I've seen a lot of people finding that transition from sport into the real world difficult. But it's something that sort of say it's inevitability of anyone going into a sporting career that it will end at relatively young age. But it was forced upon you very suddenly. So I suspect you hadn't had any time to prepare for what came after rugby. Your initial thoughts around that? Yeah, I, I'd started to do some, I was interested in marketing and I'd start to do some stuff with Bundy, just trying to get some work experience. But it was like, well, that's, I can start to figure that when I'm in my 30s, because I was 27 at this stage. But what I got out of retiring early was, one, I was never told I wasn't wanted, as most players have to be told, sorry, your career's up here at this club. It's time for you to move somewhere else. I didn't get that. What I got instead was how good I could have been, constantly told to me. You know, I've had spoken to other guys injured early, which is a little bit frustrating, but also you can't argue against it because you can't say, well, I, actually I was going to be useless because no one believes <laughs> you. So, so that's kind of nice. And I always liken it to if you have a ski, Sometimes you're going down the mountain and you lose a ski, but you can actually stay upright for a while. And then at some point you got to crash. I didn't crash for a year. I did not deal with things for about a year because there's kind of highs. Oh, well, this was great. You're in a World Cup and yada, yada, yada. And then things about a year after that kind of started to fall apart. And then I really had to deal with all of the change that had taken place, which was enormous. You know, change is pretty stressful. And I had five or six things happen at the same time. I got divorced, you know, new career, almost died moving across the country. And so sort of at the end of that cycle, I kind of went, oh, okay, I've got to deal with something here. So at that point, I kind of stood, took stock and took a step back and, and sorted things out. So at that point, like from a physical point of view, you, you've recovered like to the extent that you do recover or are you still in a brace and whatever else? I was in a neck brace. When I had the injury, the doctor said to me, this is going to go one of three ways. You become a quad, you get killed, or you're going to walk out of here. And uh, so I got to walk out, but I was in a neck brace for another couple of months. And I got, I won't say addicted, but I got to a place where I didn't want to stop taking the uh, morphine. And so that was actually one of the biggest challenges to get off that because I, I was only feeling normal when I was taking that. And so I had to kind of remove myself. The neck brace was only on for about a month or so. I mean, I'll always be a prop. I'll always, always have to turn the body to turn the head. But other than that, no, it's fine. Can you talk about that sort of that sort of dark spot, like a, a year on, when it sort of feels like everything's going against you? What I actually found was I had some trauma that I had as a kid also came up that I sort of hadn't dealt with, and it just felt like this wave coming over me of everything that had happened before that I'd forgotten about sort of coming back. And I'd had a particular day when I was about fifteen, and it was very very similar to that. So this one day when I was fifteen, uh, my parents told me that I was that they were breaking up. And my neighbour, uh, two doors down, died of an asthma attack on the same day. And I was just like, this is a lot to deal with. So I, I, remember, I remember going to school and going to see the uh, chaplain. The chaplain said, oh, I can't really see her. I'm really busy. So I walked out of the chaplain's office. I felt as though later on, even though I was in a, a, probably a darker place, that I was self-aware to know that I was feeling suicidal. And I knew who to go and speak to about it. And I ended up going and seeing a clinical psych and understanding this was just a feeling I had at the moment and that it would end and that I would, and things would get better. It's where I think a lot of people have challenges feeling it's not going to get better. 
for me, this was just like, okay, this is a cycle here. I'm in a really dark spot and went and saw somebody and, and got through it. And that actually came about because of my experiences when I was a kid, when my parents broke up, I actually went and saw a psych then. So I kind of knew that process. So kind of getting through things at that point helped me get through things later on. The benefits, if you like, of having been in a difficult, difficult position before. 100%. The sort of purpose of the of the podcast is to go through the, this idea that people can face setbacks and and at the darkest moment we look at a company at the darkest moment the share price might reflect despair but if you can identify at that point that there is something worth investing in or something that's going to come good on the other side it's a, it's, it's a great point to to get in so I'm thinking about that in the sort of context of you know as you as a human being you're at this sort of darkest spot and then things start to get better. So maybe let's sort of talk about some of the sort of steps that sort of followed from there. Let's kind of move from the, the darkness towards towards the light, if you thought, what, what sort of came next? I think that on that particular topic, there was a day when I was a kid. So when I was in year 11, I kind of accelerated quite quickly in my development as a player. I got selected for this representational team, which you wouldn't know, but it's called the CAS Firsts. And, and the next year, I didn't get selected for them again. And I was so humiliated. Like, I felt like I was... Because I was in the squad for New South Wales, I've been sort of around about Australian schools, and I couldn't even make this rep team. And I felt so humiliated. I remember going down to the school grandstand and just sitting there for hours and said to myself, "I am never going to be dropped again. I'd never want to go through this embarrassment again." Because I really knew that it was actually my I maybe I'd slacked off a bit. I hadn't done the things I needed to do, and I actually never got dropped from that point onwards in any team I was in. Now that's probably because I was at some point I would have been. But, but that, that real moment was like I was so pissed about this that it kind of set me on course. And I see, you see that with a lot of athletes that at some point they get really, really unhappy with how things are going and they kind of make a decision to put the knuckle down, give things a go. So I decided that I would look after myself first. So I had a house in Newcastle. I went back up to there. I worked on the house. And I had a deal with myself, which was I'm not going to do anything until I'm bored. Like I'm not until I feel like I'm ready to kind of step back out, step back out there again. And so that probably took six months. I just kind of focused on let's look after myself. Don't worry about the financial part, and then I'll, I'll be happy to go back out there again. And it took a little while, but I then because when I left Perth with the Western Force, where I was in 05, 06, so I'm never coaching again. And then I got an offer to go coach in Japan and absolutely loved it. Had a ball, met my wife, and realized that fundamentally it wasn't the coaching bit that was the problem. It was the environment that I was in. I, I didn't get on with a particular person I worked for, and that was really more of the problem. And also the problems were in me. Maybe I wasn't ready to step back in within a year of retiring. So once I got coaching again, and the other thing I did is I got diagnosed with ADHD and I got, you know, started to take medication for that. And that was a huge revelation because it started to, I started to retrospectively understand some of the things I've done before. And then also said, well, maybe there's some advantages to this. And I tried to then use those advantages in the way I coached and then obviously use it out with my business. And so that's been hugely positive. So is ADHD something that you had throughout childhood as well and been unaware of, or is it something that's like a, a later onset thing? Do you know? No, I've had it, had it my entire life. It is purported to be genetic. I have what's called inattentive. So an inattentive is poorly described, but you basically focus on the things you like and not on the things you don't. So what tends to happen is the things that don't interest you eventually catch up with you. So you have to really manage that. And once I understood it, and so I was 28, 29 when I got diagnosed, it was quite frustrating because it's like, God, I wish I'd known this earlier because it would have made school a lot easier because at my school, I was kind of like, well, he's the rugby player, therefore we know he's not that smart. 
but they used to call me the goldfish because you, you know goldfish go around the bowl and you know it's, oh look a castle you know so i eventually realized that i wasn't done but i just as i said to my mum once you know it annoys me that i can play for australia but i can't find my socks like how can i do one thing complex to another thing not complex so that's also been a huge revelation for me with that diagnosis because interesting because like i mean we'll come on to the work that you do today but the work that you do today is highly intelligent, deep thinking, and and so on and so forth. So, do you, do you go back to the? Do you ever sort of think of these guys at school? They misjudge you, or do you not hold the grudges? So much of the work I do now it le leads us to understand how people can make misjudgments. You know, we make misjudgments of players and, and people because of the situation they're in. So, there's a term, you know, attribution bias, which is we overly attribute failure to the individual, not to the situation the individual's in. Or, or success. So I kind of completely understand it. It's not particularly fair, but at the same time, ADHD comes with a whole bunch of things that make life difficult for people dealing with other people who have ADHD. So if they thought I was a dickhead, it's probably because I was. So, yeah. <laughs> so I've, I've come to hopefully come to terms with it in that way, but it's been an absolute blessing. I, I wouldn't have it any other way. So we'll go to the now shortly, but I, I always wonder if you, know, if you hadn't been a prop, where do you think you would have ended up? So in that moment in 2003, you talk about, I'll have to do something with computers. Is that, do you think that's the alternative? Is that the parallel universe for you? Had you not been a rugby player? Have you ever thought about that? My old man wanted me to be in furniture planning. That was always his plan for me. I think I would have gone into that and then realized I didn't like it at, at some point. My family's from Yorkshire. If we'd stayed there, I probably would have been working in a factory. That was our kind of family history. So you, you never know where it's going to end up. You know, I was told in school, you know, they have these tests that tell you uh, where your intelligence lies. And my answer came back that I was either going to be a priest or a taxi driver. What kind of terrible answer is that? <laughs> <laughs> One, I'm not religious. Two, like taxi driver, that's fine. It's, 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 a good, it's a good living, but it's not exactly a skill set that, that you can say, well, that comes out of something. So it took a bit of time for me to eventually figure it out. Okay. I, I still haven't figured out what I want to do, but I'm enjoying what I do now. So let's talk a little bit about you, what you're doing now and and i say in you know in one word the word you've sort of become associated with is this word cohesion how would you describe that what was the key insight that we should focus on everything we do with this sort of study and now it's almost 10 years is you're kind of refining it and understanding it and you only really begin to understand it when you do it for a long time i, I almost describe it as like you know the japanese guys who make swords they're constantly refining it and they, you know, it takes them 30 years to finally start to figure out how to really make it, make a sword. So one turn of phrase I would use is that the level of understanding between the participants of the team is far more predictive of the outcome than the level of individual skill. It's kind of the sentence that hopefully encapsulates the work. And one of the things about it is it's, it's really trying to be objective and really, if you have an agenda in how you judge companies in a viewpoint, right? And you say, right, we're just going to stick to that viewpoint no matter what the market tells us. Then it's very hard to get to the heart of the truth because then it's like dogmatism is your enemy. For us, we're saying, what is the truth of performance? So that we just keep that at the heart of all our research. If it's just coaching, then it's coaching. If it's just understanding, it's understanding. And the answer is it's complicated. And we work to understand that complexity. So that's one of the, the, the sort of interesting paradoxes here. So if you like, the purpose of this entire series, Investing for Life, is that an individual is a case study and, and you're looking at your own journey and we talk about you know your setbacks and how you've recovered from them. What we're doing as analysts looking at companies is we're trying to understand 
companies which are effectively collections of teams and they're incredibly complex so i have this view that if we can start by understanding how you apply a philosophy to an individual we, we we get somewhere before we have to worry about the the complexity of a team the work you've done effectively encapsulates how complex analyzing teams and therefore analyzing companies really can be so i guess um you know you you touch you you landed on this if you like epiphany through your own experiences um i know that story but maybe just share it with the with the listeners so as a as a player i was always confused by how is it we do well in rugby in australia it didn't make sense um uh, chris martin from coldplay once said in an interview in england we got so excited when we run the won the rugby world cup and then i went to australia and realized no one plays rugby but it didn't make sense based on our numbers and then when i was a coach I would go to one team and that team would win everything. I'd go to another team and I couldn't win anything. And so I was starting to realize I could not necessarily control the the outcome, even though I was doing the same things. In fact, my worst year ever of coaching, the team went completely undefeated. Right? I should stuff them up the most, but they still managed to overcome. Um, and then when I started doing data analytics, I was noticing this and I would say this is still the case in a lot of a lot of way people look at companies is people started to build a narrative of the why based on the performance. So if the team was winning, they've got a great culture. If a team is doing something particularly well, they just say, well, that, so let's say they're selling cars particularly well. Well, they've got great salesmen. But for me, that was not actually getting to the heart of why teams were successful. It was just describing what they were doing. And what I was finding was the further we moved towards correlation, the further we moved away from causation. And that was, and, and, and I think one of the major, major mistakes we make in data analysis of teams and data analysis of companies is we base everything on form. This is how they're doing. Therefore, that's why I'm saying they're good, but it can't be that. It can't be that because something is causing them to be good. So I hear the word being used more often, particularly actually in the rugby circles. You hear commentators talking about it. You hear coaches talking about it. And you know, having known you now for a number of years, I always think, oh, it's great. Ben's work is getting recognition. And then I hear how they're using the term. And <laughs> <completely> <laughs> it, strike, it strikes me they've heard the word, but they've not heard the lesson, if you like. So maybe talk a bit yeah. about that. Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest things we've found again and again is that it does not always agree with people's narrative of themselves. So if you're a coach who's winning everything, you don't necessarily want someone like me coming along saying, to be honest with you, as a coach, you're probably no different to anyone else. It's the team that's better. Um, and it, what's interesting is talking to guys like Craig Bellamy, uh, uh, Arsene Wenger, I've really been very lucky to sit with a couple of times, is they're very aware of that. They know they are not the reason for the success. They know they've... There's certain things they can do, but massive things they can't control. So Bellamy said to me, now I understand why I couldn't win State of Origin, because he has actually has the worst record as a State of Origin coach in, in New South Wales. So um, it's, it is often something that people want to recognise when it's useful to them, but something they kind of want to happy to dismiss when it's not useful to them or it doesn't kind of go by their narrative. And as, as I always, always say, it's like cohesion doesn't care whether you believe in it or not the objective data means it's something and it is affecting games every day 
and you know we have been rugging our 56,000 games worth of data. You can see it in the way games will will play out, um, and so uh, really, really only the clients that we work with get to get a really deep look at it. And and I I, I did a thing with corporate the other day, and this guy said to me, you know, uh, I've just made quite a few changes to this company. Uh, and I've just done some of the things you've talked about. I'm finding this very confronting. I don't think I want to have a conversation with you anymore. I'm like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> but you still got the realities of what's taken place. So uh, because he didn't want to be blamed, he didn't want to raise something that he'd done, you know, um, as, as th- this was going to be a problem. So that's a, that's a challenge we have all the time. So the idea, like conceptually, is that you benefit from staying together as a team. You You improve, you perform better. So are you simply saying that the, the role of the coach is as much as anything to get out of the way and let the system, I mean, or, or is the role of the coach to hold the system together? Like how, how would you define what Bellamy or Wenger or Ferguson at Manchester United in his day and so on? What do these guys do to foster that cohesion? So I think, I think, I think first of all, it's not about climbing mountains. It's not about singing songs. It's, you know, we know, we know guys who hate each other who are highly cohesive and highly effective. There's a complexity to this in, in the one thing I would say is it's not until you have a stable environment you can actually figure out who can play and who can't because in an unstable environment, most of the causes as to why there's an underperformance is not because people are bad at what they do but because there's so much adjustment going on. And, and the other thing is that people cannot get better when constantly dealing with chaos. So if I came tomorrow and said, right, Platinum's going to use a new computer system, then you're going to use a new customer registration system, if that's the right term, um, then that, that will create a level of chaos. And so you can't do your job. And you'll have other people who are like, oh, this system's great, and other people are struggling dramatically with it. But that doesn't mean they're not competent. So the, the first things first we always say to people is just get things stable enough to figure out who can do what they want to do and then make the changes that are appropriate. But if you just keep everybody together, that's actually not the answer. There's things about the size and the shape and the systems that you use and how they're introduced, which is, is it's, it's either going to be trying to reduce the amount of changes that are made so therefore you get more improvement in everybody or at the very least understand the changes that are being made and what they're going to do and how much it's going to affect everybody and not to chuck out the baby with the bathwater. So we looked at this, you know, as a firm, probably going back now about about five years. So I I liked your concepts you were illustrating with sport. We applied them, if we like, we looked at it at a corporate level. Everything, I would say, rang true. Um, But over the last few years, you've continued to sort of to develop and and refine your thinking. So, you know, the conversations we started having um, in some ways were a basic level. And and as, as you've gone on, things have become more and more sophisticated and the understandings got deeper down to elements of teams rather than entirety of teams and so on and so forth so so how are you pushing the boundaries and you know can you sort of talk through your if you like hypothesis testing or how you go about um thinking about ways of refining um what is a a high level concept the the easiest way to do that is finding when it's when the when the system is not predicting outcomes and then looking at those outcomes. And in sport, for example, you know, I've talked to this before, but there were these games that weren't making sense to us where the outcome was running against the model. 
And we found that a lot of them were taking place when teams were changing their jersey. And we're like, okay, that's weird. So I just went and asked guys, what's it like when teams change a jersey? So I asked Danny Baderas and Stanley Mottlock and they said, oh, you go past your teammate and you flinch because you're looking for the colour, right? You're looking for the new, new colour. And so we then said, okay, well, how will that represent itself? So we looked at the offload data and we found that the offloads dropped away dramatically. People were either passing to ghosts, passing to the opposition. In fact, there was a great example three weeks ago when the Storm played um, the Brisbane Broncos and one of the Storm players who'd come from Brisbane goes to the sideline, grabs the ball, looks inside and passes it directly to his old teammate who then runs down the other end and scores a try. So he's like, he's doing what he's used to doing. Okay, so... Um, so we can't so blame we him. Found, you know, we can't blame him. So, yeah. so well, it's it's you're reverting, right? You revert back to what you know. So what we found was they, they underperformed, but only in attack, not in defence. When you defend, you're looking at the opposition. So that was a nuance, and we said, okay, that is a form of system adaptation. So now we can bring that into the model. We, But you've got to test that across every time anyone does that. So we, I think we looked at three or 400 games. What we came to was if the colour is the same, but the design is slightly different, doesn't seem to make an impact, it's when the colour is different, not something they're used to, not like a like a, a way jersey. It's got to be something like uh, Newcastle Knights wear this high-vis jersey. And I think they've only won one out of the last seven games wearing this jersey at home games. So uh, that's sort of the first part. The second part was um, you get enough information and you start to understand what doesn't make a difference. So we kept adding different things like coaches. And fundamentally, when we added coaches to it, if we had them or took them away, the only time we could see coaches realistically making a difference is in their ability to derail teams. So to come in with experience and the teams would tend to underperform. In fact, the NRL, in their first year, the more experienced coaches had, the more the teams were underperforming because they were coming in and making changes if they were an external so yeah. So, so the problem was the making of changes rather than anything else because they were dismantling yeah. a previous system. Yeah, but, and also then the problem is is that the cohesion the team has in used to doing style A then works against them, right? Because if you've got a company and you've been using a system system A for twelve years, you find it harder than a twenty two year old who's only been using it for one year to change to the new system. So that's where it all of a sudden sort of inverts against you, which is what we are so used to doing this, therefore we want to do this. And, and in fact, you know, one of the pieces of advice we give to teams who are taking on high cohesion teams to try to beat them is you have to take them to a place they haven't been before. You have to make them do something they're not used to and 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 try to get them to respond to that. And and hopefully that, that you can start to break them down because otherwise you don't really stand a big big chance. So so when we look at this, let's let's imagine a perfect world uh, from from your perspective where everyone everyone uh, maybe you are going to be a priest and everyone uh, take adopts the, re- the religion of cohesion. Um, so it becomes the widespread, let's say, the methodology that is used. Does it sort of end up competing itself away and become like? Does this work if you know this and others don't, or or can everyone? try to act in a more cohesive way and I guess, yeah, what does that do for the competitive dynamics of a of a, of a competition or an industry or, or what have you? Well, what you're describing is the AFL. Right? The AFL, through some changes, mainly made through Ross Oakley in the late 90s, became the number one cohesion league in the world. Right? Yep. In any, so in any that, sport. Any sport. Yeah. So what that does 
is it's now much harder to introduce an expansion team into the AFL. It's the most, probably one of the most profitable, if not the most profitable leagues in professional sport. In terms of money per fan, crowds, you know, you'll get 60,000 two teams outside the eight, you know, here in Melbourne. The fan engagement. So those organisations are even the ones at the bottom of the table, like the worst AFL team is still probably the same level of cohesion as, uh, you know, like a Melbourne Storm right now, pretty close to that. Like they're just, the whole thing is very well built. So you get a level of efficiency within that world. But what then tends to happen is the other things will start to speak for themselves. The skill differential between the athletes will make, if everyone has the same level of cohesion that it comes down to skill, leadership and all those components, but um, it's just it's just smaller nuances of understanding will make the difference. But the quality of the product is much higher and there's less wastage. You know, if you look at Brazilian football, so, so the AFL, I think the average coach tenure now is four and a half years, five years. Brazilian football is three months. There's a lot of wastage in that system. People coming and going and people losing their jobs and and in that type of environment, no one gets better. So it's it's um yeah, if you can create a high cohesion environment, it's fantastic. But uh, we would always prefer that that we actually have a limit of we won't work with more than twenty five percent of a comp uh, because you know we don't want we don't want the entire competition working against one another. Um, and and you do tend to lose a bit of an advantage, but you know maybe if they paid enough. Of, be willing to question that rule, but yeah, you could run. Point, you could, you could run the you run the whole competition on a spreadsheet in uh, in your office. But like, yeah, so exactly. so let let's let's go in dig into the AFL then. So what 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 could other sports do to learn from the AFL? What is it they're doing differently? Because I think in other codes, often you see a lot of wastage. So you know, what what could they do better? If if the EPL was the AFL, it would be illegal because of restraint of trade. So there's things that they do that other competitions can't. There's no other competition to draw from. You don't have, in rugby, you've got French rugby, Japanese rugby to come and take from your competition. So part of why the NRL and the AFL do so well is that there's nothing to come and take from them fundamentally. Um, so that's that's one thing they have an advantage. But all of the AFL clubs now are what we call singularly aligned. So they have a system underneath their club that brings everybody up and through. They have um, they have uh, the free agency agreement where players can't really leave if they if they want to for the first of six years. But that would not work in the EPL. But they, you know, the the AFL went through some very dark times in the eighties, and players were moving clubs mid-season t- terribly, and it was bankrupting the whole thing. And they decided to fix that. There was actually a guy called um, I think I mentioned before Ross Oakley. Now, I remember him telling me that he was talking to the Brisbane Bears and said, if you keep signing guys like Warwick Kappa, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fold the tape. I can't deal with this anymore. So he made them take these kids and those kids were Black, Brown, Voss, Ackermanis, who were in 1998 last and then 21 of those guys went back to back to back, almost one fourth time. So sometimes... Cohesion is forced upon you. Sometimes it's an active internal decision. So a lot is made of, of as you said, the culture after the fact. So um, the All Blacks is a good example. Um, the book Legacy has been been widely sort of read in, in business circles. Um, people celebrate various aspects of of that culture. But you would argue that 
the success of of the All Blacks over the years would come down to being a system rather than being a culture. If if culture was true, if the notion of a culture being the difference between the teams was true, then we would see the All Blacks performing differently. In other words, when their numbers are bad, Ireland put forty on them. We beat them. If if their numbers are better than us, they beat us. So they're not overperforming. But what is happening is when teams win, we'll say, oh, isn't this amazing? You know, they're cleaning the sheds, they have a no-to-get policy. But, you know, you still get, there's still there's some absolutely appalling behaviour uh, by All Blacks in the last 10 years, but we're all just really happy to forget about it. And I remember someone talking about uh, Richmond two years ago and they were, you know, just about to make the grand final. And some things had come out about the behaviour of the coach in the club. We don't have to go into the risk behind that. And the commentator was saying, you know, it just speaks to the Richmond culture that they can survive these type of incidents and still be su- successful. Like, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. You, can't, you can't say, well, this is a dreadful culture, but the culture makes it successful. It's like, it's just well built. And, and you know, I could, an example I use constantly, the 2006 West Coast Eagles are the worst performed bunch of humans in the history of Australian sport, and they won everything because their numbers were great. It, now, people left later on because of that, some of that behaviour and the team fell apart. Therefore, its cohesion went down. But even whilst the behaviour was bad, they still won. So if we bring it back to, to the Wallabies where you, um, you like started your career, You know, what is the prognosis of Australian rugby? A couple of years ago, I, I was lucky we kind of made a comment at one stage that we thought Australia would end up ninth in the world because their cohesion is about that point. That's where it's headed. And, and as of this week, we've now reached ninth in the world, which I don't take any pride in that. I take pride in the prognosis. I don't take pride in the fact we are. Um, it's difficult to watch. With, you know, th- there, is, there isn't actually anyone to blame in all of this. A number of things have changed. One is European rugby sorted itself out. The Irish, the Scottish, the Welsh have all improved dramatically. Even the French have improved. They've kind of got less foreigners now playing in top 14. They're based around basically the Toulouse team. So, so the cohesion generally around the world's gone up. We've gone backwards, not at a terrific rate in us, but very gradually over the last 20 years. And we've kind of, we have ended up where we should be. The hard part now is trying to turn it around. And I think the one thing that we're getting out of where we're at at the moment is none of this is about coaching. Like every coach Australia's had has pretty much performed at their best. Um, you know, probably I'd say if there's one coach who, who got close to performing like absolute peak was probably Robbie Deans for about a year or so. But but even then, you know, he had a worse record than the guy before him. It's pretty much how it's worked with every coach, coach, coach Australia is their record's gotten worse. But one of the problems is because New Zealand's now getting worse as well, that we if we just compare ourselves to them, you have a problem because because that's not the standard anymore. Of where, of where, for example, an island is at. So we're using the wrong benchmark. Yeah, I think I think if because we play New Zealand so often, we kind of have have said, "Oh, great, we've beaten New Zealand this year. I've gotten closer to New Zealand." Yeah, but they've come off forty percent last two years. So that would be a mistake to do that, and and that's not what's going to win a World Cup. We need to be in an entirely different place to where we are, and it's getting pretty late in the it's getting pretty late in the piece now to get ourselves right for next year. 
in fact, all things equal, we won't have time to get ready for next year. So, in that kind of environment, should should a is a World Cup an event where you can prepare for the next one and sort of almost almost write off the current one and look to twenty seven when the the competition's at home and try and peak at the right time. Being at home is good. I mean, the one thing we have for next year is we have an unbelievable draw. It's ridiculous. We we should make the quarterfinals without blinking, and then from there, so, sorry. No. I was going to say you avoid Scotland. That must be you must be pleased with that. <laughs> that yeah, that's the, that's the danger. Um, no, so so like Scotland have the nightmare draw. I don't know who they're with, but it's it's really difficult. But if you if you you never know what's going to happen, right? You get bad decisions, over balls bounce funny, and particularly if there's a couple of injuries. We noticed that for example with Ireland in 2015, they lose um, uh, their, their number ten, Sex, Sexton, um, Sexton, and it was it was they were done. Right, these are the basis of the game. So you never know how things – it's actually easier to win a World Cup than it is a rugby championship sometimes because to win that, you've got to beat South Africa at home, you've got to beat New Zealand at home. You don't have to do that to win a World Cup. In fact, 99, you didn't have to play them. What I would say is, is that if, if we want to be consistently successful and be able to beat Ireland in Ireland, France in France, New Zealand in New Zealand, we have to change things. And if you can do those things, you can win World Cups. And, and yeah, we need. There's a lot. There's a lot over the next couple of years that we would have to do, but whether anyone is prepared to take that pain is a big question. Okay, I'll leave my uh, I'll leave my betting to the 27 World Cup instead. <laughs> um, you, you once said, or, or you you quoted to me that that lack of experience can be your biggest advantage. Um, maybe that's a, a good place to sort of finish. What what do you mean by that? If you take a kid and you bring him into platinum straight out of university, you say to him, this is how we do business here. He's not going to he's not going to fall back to anything else because he doesn't know anything else. He hasn't been with any other BT or whoever, hasn't been anywhere else. He doesn't have to unlearn anything. He doesn't have an agenda of, okay, well, I learned this, you know, in, in footballing terms, it's like, well, this is what we do at Hawthorne, you know. And so he can't try to bring anything to the table and he's also more of a sponge because he doesn't have to unlearn to learn. And unlearning is much harder than learning. So when we talk about the way to recruit, we tend to focus on what we call period of experience. Yes, it's not about age. If you're a 50-year-old, you've been driving taxis your whole life and you came to Platinum, you wouldn't have a way of doing something. And so you could basically take that person and mold him the way you would like to. So when we, when we talk to clubs, one of the problems is they see someone else performing very well somewhere else and not understanding the attribution bias of, well, that's how they do it there. That's not how they're going to do it for you in this environment. But you're not simply saying build a team of young kids. No, that, that's a mistake. A lot of people have looked at what Sir Alex Ferguson did at Man U and said, right, they've ended up with a bunch of kids. Or you look at Penrith Panthers, they did the same thing. Panthers are the second youngest team of the comp. But there is a process to getting there, which is you have to be stable first and then you bring people up and through together. So the reason that Penrith are so successful is, yes, they have the second youngest team in the comp, but those guys have been together since some of them were 12 or 13 years of age. So they have much more time in that system. If you, if you just said, right, everyone at Platinum now is going to be under the age of 25 and you hadn't created that system, then you, you would be in free fall performance wise that's excellent that's a fascinating topic um you know this is a 
a very very brief snapshot in the context of you and I conversation. You know, we've, we've um, I've learned a heap over the last few years, and I'm just glad that you've been able to share a little bit with the listeners today. So Ben, thanks very much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Jack. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Investing for Life podcast. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. For show notes from today's conversation, head to platinum.com.au.